and welcome back to MMA BJJ and Life. I'm your host, TJ San Marco, and that song you hear in the background, of course, is Blinded Me with Science by <coughs> Thomas Dolby, which I think is very appropriate for our first uh, guest, our guest interviewer uh, this evening that will tackle the subject that is Professor Brent Littell. But uh, our guest interviewer is none other than the director for uh, the Center of Sport Training and Research, Associate Professor of Motor Control and Learning at Long Beach State University. Professor Will Wu, what is up? Coach DJ, everything is going well. What was the title of that song again? You blinded me with science. By, oh, by with science or silence? Science, science. Oh, got it, got it, got it. Got it. Right. Oh, nice. All right. Very yeah. Nice. yeah, I thought that was apropos. And then uh, the next song, here we go with the next walkout song, um, which I think is appropriate for an original gangster of the, uh, the uh, uh, Orange County jiu-jitsu scene. And uh, here we go without further ado. Dead or alive <laughs> for my oh, man, man. <laughs> Professor Brent Lutzel. <laughs> Professor Brent, how you doing, brother? I'm doing well, thank you. I'm hanging in there. Yeah. Oh. I, uh, <laughs> I had some technical issues getting on the show, but I'm hoping those are clearing up. And um, do you have any affinity or love for New Jersey's own John Bon Jovi and Richie Zambora doing Wanted Dead or Alive? I went and saw them at the Great Western Forum in 1989. What? They, oh, yeah. I uh, what's it called? Um, Skid Row opened for them, and Sebastian Bach, the lead singer, was wasted. Um, but yeah, so I have a little bit of love seeing seeing as I went to the forum and lost probably about two percent of my hearing. <laughs> <laughs> what, That's what, what was your what was your what was your hair like back then, Brett? Um, if you took <laughs> if you took a bowl and you put it on a head and then you cut all the hair that was sticking out from the bowl, that would probably be pretty close to what my hair was looking like. Oh, so I like that. There was no nope. business up front party in the back. I was not even cool enough to go with uh, <laughs> with Joe Dirt. <laughs> no, Mississippi. What is it? Mudslide. Or <laughs> all, all the different names they have for it. All right, folks. All right. Welcome back to MMA BJJ and Life. I'm your host, DJ San Marco, and that is the aforementioned Professor Will Wu, Professor of, well, let me let me make sure I get this right again, <laughs> Associate <laughs> Professor of Motor Control and Learning at Long Beach State, and uh, Professor of Jiu-Jitsu, and a, can you give us your job title? Is that appropriate to whatever your, your title is, Brent? At work? Hello? Um, I... I lost you for a second. My job title has changed probably since I've spoken to you. I uh, I am a uh, clinical director now for a drug rehabilitation center. So um, you can call me. You're a therapist of sorts. 
Yeah, I'm a marriage and family therapist by license, yeah. And then uh, right now I'm doing the clinical directing over at a uh, small detox and rehabilitation uh, center. In short, he helping people with their problems. Yeah, maybe someone like John Jones who has a problem. <laughs> Jonathan Dwight Jones, I have a number for you. I won't say it on air, but please DM me on Twitter so I can give you the phone number of Professor Brent Littell who can help oh, you I mean, with all your issues. If, if you want to just talk about like typical drug addict behavior, everything he does follows that pattern. From the you know the car accidents and interactions with the law to the not wanting to take responsibility to the going back to you know throwing themselves with the humility oh oh I was terrible then back I mean he's just all over the map with his emotional lability and uh, he needs some help man he's thrown away a beautiful career he could have been one of the best to ever fight and now because of drugs and yes anabolic steroids are a drug. Um, now he's he's gonna be uh, he'll be lucky to fight again in the UFC if Dana will give him any fights. You know he made a what was that card he made disappear about five years ago? Oh, we, that that's actually part of the the article I, I did on uh, Bloody Elbow about the mindset behind why the greatest of all times, uh, comma John Jones would use PEDs and basically it was UFC 151 where he was supposed to fight Dan Henderson. And I'm going to kind of compare and contrast um, John Jones and Daniel Cormier. So John was supposed to fight Dan. Dan ends up getting a knee injury. He tells the UFC, and eight days out, they, they're they now without a main event, and the card was not terribly strong. So they uh, Chael Sonnen steps up and says, I'll fight John on eight days' notice, no problem. John's camp says no. I'm like, wait a minute, a 185-pound wrestler that doesn't have one-fourth the athletic ability you have and you're not going to give that guy the fight? you got to be kidding me. Um, so he says no, and the UFC, because it, it was at fault for producing such a card where like Jake Ellenberger and somebody else was the co-main, they had to cancel the whole card. None of the fighters got paid. Uh, you have vendors, you have people who bought tickets, you have people who bought travel plans and all these sorts of things, and it's canceled. I want to juxtapose that against one year ago, July, John pops positive for clomiphene and letrozole two days before the fight. They offer a guy we used to call the Matrix in Anderson Silva, they offer him up to Daniel Cormier, he says, sure, go ahead, I'll put on a show. I mean, that's a guy that can land like a flying knee, and all of a sudden you're looking up wondering what happened. Right. So tell me what you guys, what's your thoughts about that, that juxtaposition? I can hear someone's uh, TV in the background. Yeah, I'm sorry. I had to okay. move my server, or not my server, my modem, because I was getting some feedback. Okay. So now the TV's gone. Sorry. Okay. Um, what is my feedback on that? Um, well, this is a part and parcel with what Dana White's been doing more recently and the UFC's been doing, which is charging people for lackluster cards. Um, and so you run into these situations now. I mean, they're, how many cards a month are they putting on? Four to six cards a month? And then they're expecting people to pay for two to three of those? 
Yeah, so, de- yeah, definitely. I mean, I've spent I spent a hundred dollars on Mayweather McGregor, and I spent sixty on the card last weekend with Amanda Nunes. This and uh, the one where uh, DJ's opponent didn't show up, Ray Borg. Yes. So it's just a, you know, that was kind of the beginning of it, um, because back in, let's say two thousand four, you would have a card every three months, and I'm not suggesting they go to that model. Mm-hmm. Yep. But every single fight on that card was like something you were super excited about. And now you have guys who are fighting in the main event who should probably be in prelims, you know, because they're not that, you don't know them yet and they haven't built up their record. And then you have these, some of these, even the, the main cards where you're just kind of like, man, really? And I'm thinking, who, the only people that are buying this must be like family members of the uh, fighters. <laughs> fighters themselves or like die hard fight fans but but you're not drawing maybe there's a, a model that i don't see which is like the uh hooters and uh what's the like buffalo wild wings subscription model where they just make so much money from because i think they charge them like ten thousand dollars a it's show a, it's a lot of money because i talked to the air force once about getting a card and they did it but it was like eight or nine thousand dollars or something so maybe that model just works for them, and so I'm being stupid. When I look at, so like how I jumped to this is, you know, John Jones was the only fight on that card that people were super excited about. So you have people paying for the main event style the way like they would for boxing. So when that disappears, you have nothing, and it just goes to to what the UFC's been doing lately is people are just like shaking their head online when they're seeing these cards come out that they want fifty bucks for or whatever, and they're going, really? Like, I don't want to pay for that. You know? oh, okay, but let me contrast something for you guys. Yeah. If that was Conor McGregor, they say, ah, oh, we're going to change it You know, a few days out. It's going to be Chad Mendes. He takes the damn fight, and he says, I don't care who you put in there. I'm going to go in there and beat the guy. Daniel Cormier says, you know what? Okay, um, John's not in it. I'm going to go. F- I'll fight Anderson Silva. But you save the car. You go and say, you know what? I'm a partner in this thing. Remember Conor said, well, I'm a partner in this business. Yeah. And that's why they freaking love Connor, and that's why they can't stand John. Yeah, and but frankly, D- that's why I can't stand John. Yeah, but DJ, in the, in the case of Connor and Daniel, they're truly, like, they're truly doing things for UFC other than fighting. I just look at it from John Jones's perspective. You can always say, and I kind of referred for to this concept the last time we spoke was there's the warrior mentality, right? And when you have the warrior mentality, you almost put to the backseat more of an intellectual strategic approach to it. So I would, I would just look at it from if John Jones and his camp saw something in shale in that shale Sonnen fight that they didn't like, is that such a bad thing? If they, if they say, no, we're not going to take this at least right now on short notice because it's strategic or maybe you could say some people would say that it's probably the smart thing to do because they saw something that they didn't like <laughs> is that such a bad thing than just saying so okay it, we'll take it no matter who it is but the guy has nothing to offer john went out and finished him in the first round it was literally seconds i mean it was like i don't remember i don't even remember the time of the fight it was like a very very quick finish that he destroyed Shell. Once he clinched with him, threw him down, hit him with a couple elbows, he was done. I mean, mm. okay, you know what? 
assuming you're correct will and because I think that's probably what it was is what you're saying but it points to the mental weakness that leads into the guy who you wants to use performance enhancing drugs to get an advantage because yep. Brent what guy is 29 year old athletic freak most unbelievable MMA fighter this kid has ever seen and he calls out a 46 year old guy who hasn't submission grappled in years and and call and there's a retired fighter and calls that guy out for Chael Sonnen's pay-per-view event on flow grappling absolutely you know and he's well he's also the type of guy who and we don't really know, and maybe you have more insight in this, DJ, the guy who ran um, Rashad out of his home camp. John. Yeah. Yeah. I've got all the insight on that, unfortunately, sadly. Yeah, and so that's the type of guy we're dealing with. I mean, he really – I'm playing armchair quarterback, so I need to put this out there. I've never met John Jones. Um, I'm not diagnosing him with anything. I'm just looking at it from my perspective, which is this dude – is super selfish, self-centered, and <laughs> has an obvious chip on his shoulder about his abilities. Um, in spite of the fact that he walks around like he's an egomaniac, somebody who has true faith in their abilities won't use steroids. So I don't want to hear that BS argument that they all... It's called rationalizing, right? It's where you take the... Um, thing that you want to do which is use steroids and then you create a whole bunch of arguments for why you should why you then should be using it in spite of the fact that you know it's wrong so he would be someone that would rational oh it was this it was that by the way some of the steroids he were taking are not that powerful i've had them uh i've had them steroids and i didn't end up filling the prescription but prescribed by my doctor to me just as like a super low grade thing to deal with a, a medical condition so I don't know who his person is, but they're not very good either. <laughs> it's funny you say that, Brett, because DJ and I were having that same conversation last time, was if you're going to get caught for something in this day and age, and especially if you're one of the best UFC fighters of all time, you, should, you have a competent team to, to get you to pass all those tests. So what I was, what I was saying to DJ last time was they ha he has some serious seriously incompetent people or there's just a big joke going on that turned out to be super bad because he tested positive because in this day and age if you're a top athlete and he is the elite of the ufc you don't get caught if you're doping right um yeah but, i mean I, I will say like from the standpoint of i don't know how i'm not familiar with how rampant doping is in the ufc at least sophisticated doping in the ufc but in other in other sports like if you take track and field, for example, or if you take, uh, you know, cycling, for example, if you're not doping, you're not competing. Um, and it's not, it's not an issue of right or wrong, per se. It's just an issue of what is keeping you competitive. And if, if that's the case or, you know, I don't know if we have that or the two of you have that inside information or not, um, you know, maybe... He feels if other people are doing it, he needs to do it too. Well, I just want to quote. Uh, I want to quote Dan Gable here. Something that uh, will hurt read my my piece, but it says 
Dan Gable, and I quote, Besides the health effects, what you lose when you use steroids is mental toughness. The key to victory is that the strongest mind wins. You can get physical strength with steroids, but you lose the mental toughness you would have gained from brutal hard work. Steroids hurt mental toughness by serving as a crutch. Um, I don't know. I can't say for John why, but what I pieced together for you is things that he does and then relate it of how weak of mind he is and weak of constitution. For example, when the thing happened with Rashad Evans, and I can I can actually present you an article, an interview, where he said, I will not fight Rashad if I hope Rashad beats Shogun and becomes the champion. And I'm paraphrasing. If he does, I will fight off every top contender and just sit there and wait my turn and be happy for him. Then he goes... He beats Shogun because Diego Sanchez rolls over Rashad's knee in training, rolls over the back of his leg, hurts his knee, and so they need to find a replacement to fight Shogun. It ends up being John Jones. He wins, and then he does a radio interview where he says, I would fight Daniel Cormier. This was a small-time MMA radio interview that went nuclear within minutes of him saying, I'd fight, excuse me, I'd fight Rashad because they had had an agreement not to fight. To this day, somebody said the other day they uh, on Sherdog, it was a post-fight on Sherdog, he said, why doesn't, he asked, posed the question, why doesn't Cormier go to heavyweight? Because Cain Velasquez is at heavyweight, and he will not go and fight against Cain Velasquez. But he really means it. Right. John was just saying it. So we go, to, we, so we go from that, to UFC 151, where he deep sixes a card that he could have saved, probably because of what Will said, because of a weak mental constitution. And then, um, then after that, when he wins a grappling match against a 46-year-old, tapping him out within six minutes, he then calls out Chael Sonnen to, to fight him in his own grappling promotion, the guy that he wouldn't fight in MMA. And when they ask him, would you consider grappling Daniel Cormier? What did he say, guys? He said whatever you say next. <laughs> he said he said I'm not going to grapple Cormier cuz I don't want to give him any false sense of security. I want to be oh, able ooh. to go in there and have my elbows and knees and yada 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 yada. And what my friend uh you know what? I'm not going to name this person although you guys know who I'm talking about. But my source inside the Jackson camp that was there for 19 years told me um, when I asked him, I called him and said, dude, why is John calling out a 46-year-old retired man to grapple when there are plenty of Phil Davises and King Moe's and people that are his age, Brian Bay, it could be anybody, I don't care, it could be Cormier, people his age. And he said, because John will never enter into a competition he's not 100% sure he's going to win. He wow. would not go and grapple somebody if he thought there was a chance he was going to lose. Well, there's your mental toughness argument right there. He's not willing to put up with obstacles anymore. He, I guess he figures he ran through enough obstacles in the college wrestling and so forth. Um, I wanted to run back to something about steroids, too, because Will mentioned cycling. But there's there's a gigantic difference, too, 
between cycling and using steroids and punching someone that had and using steroids. Mm-hmm. And so this argument's been, been done before, but when you are getting stronger to fight somebody, you are now inflicting more possibly long-term damage on them. So it's not just, oh, like in cycling, I've beaten you to stage three by uh, three quarters of a second. That doesn't really harm the other bi- cyclist physically. But when I get significantly stronger and then I get in the cage and I hit you, I am damaging you. So it's something that, you know, when you say how, um, when we compare it to sports, I guess the only other sports we should really compare it to would be something like boxing um, because of the nature of competition is so damaging to the opponents. Yeah, that's that's the outcome of it, right? But before... Before I think even athletes get to that point, I think I still think it's a matter of what do I need? What do I need to do to be competitive? And so for the culture, and like I said before, I don't know if this is the culture within within MMA, but if the culture is to is to dope, well then you're going to feel that you need to be competitive. And I think what you're saying, Brent, is an excellent point in terms of the after effects or the outcome effects of what happens between, because they are very different. But I think that's something that people deal with after they have to deal with. How can I be competitive in this sport? Absolutely. Um, It's definitely, when you ask, I think that it's, I mean, who wants to throw out figures, but I'd say that the vast majority of the guys have tried Especially the ones who've been around for a while, when you used to be able to get a doctor to sign off on your TRT and your HGH. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, they were all... Therapeutic there. use exemption. Yep. And, um, and then just generally, I mean, if, if you look at the population and walking into 24-hour fitness, you have a significant amount of the dudes in the, in the room who've at least tried or played with uh, things like DECA or whatever. And so they're not even professional athletes. So when we look at then the, the professional athlete spectrum, many of the fighters I've known have used it one point or another. They may not be actively using, but there have been studies that have shown that using it uh, even you know for a couple cycles will provide you long-term strength if you keep up your activity. I Yeah, I mean, we could get into, you know, I mean, I, I have suspicions about a lot of guys, and I'm not going to. And girls, and I'm not going to mention any names. I'm just going to leave it leave it at that. But you know, John, since he got caught, he actually brings his name to the forefront as someone that that we have to look at. But you know, the type of guy that he is, and I want to tread lightly because I want to feel like I want him to be okay. I want him to be able to find a source. Of income to be able to take care of his children and his girlfriend who he as far as I know still hasn't married yet she's been his fiance like since I was in Albuquerque like six years ago um, so <laughs> you're, gonna, you're gonna hold that against him too huh? <laughs> no I mean it's just like it's bizarre like you have a fiance, you're this famous athlete, and a writer. It wasn't Deadspin, but it was a, a website like Deadspin, a rag, 
an online rag that came to spend time. They got something like three or four days with John with all day access into the night. So he goes out to dinner with the writer and the writer, everything's on the record and he's jotting down notes and John asked the waitress for her phone number. And when he has a fiance and everything was on the record, like how dumb is that? He's not he's not known for his intelligence. But you know, the thing is is it's there comes a point and I know this doesn't sound very therapeutic, but um there comes a point where you were handed a winning lottery ticket and you lost it and then somebody came back and handed it to you again. <laughs> this is great analogy. Right, and then yeah. and then you know, and then you tore it in half and someone gave you some tape. And then you manage somehow to leave it in your pocket and run it through the laundry machine. <laughs> and at the end, it's like, man, I just can't, I can't root for you anymore until you demonstrate some level of responsibility in your own life and take responsibility for what you've done. And I'm not talking about in words. Like, I just can't root for you. I'm rooting for guys like Daniel Cormier who've overcome severe physical limitations with his kidney issues um you know his daughter the death of his dad yeah and it's it's just like my i I only do we use bad language on this podcast or no go ahead yeah please yeah i've only got so many fucks to give and (laughs) and i've already handed out those fucks and he's he doesn't get any so yeah and i'm 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 uh i'm with you on that and i mean i just wanted to, to point out like when people are asking that we need to reserve judgment. We need to wait to hear, what, are you telling me that because he hired Angel Heredia, the reputed drug maker, former Mexican pharmacist who has made drug cocktails for, you know, tens of athletes in cycling and in uh, various uh, sports track and field, um, you know, because he hired him to help concoct a defense that I need to reserve judgment. It's in, it got in his body. And even Cormier said today on the MMA hour, he said, if you talk to my nutritionist, nutritionist, I am taking a number of supplements at my age and the amount of wear and tear I put on my body. And to be able to recover and train, I am taking a lot of supplements and I've never tested positive. And we could sit, I could name off, I mean, we could name off how many top fighters from Luke Rockhold to Chris Weidman to Claudia to whoever you want that have never tested positive. Uh, so the, yet, important, the important statement there, DJ, is I have never tested positive. Oh! Well, <laughs> yeah! Right. So that's, that's the important statement there. Because why? Well, I- <laughs> What what did what is in that statement? But I will say I, this about Daniel Cormier: because of his kidney situation and how close he is to having to be on dialysis, I doubt. I don't know what his life or death situations are like <laughs> in terms of his own care for his well being. But I, I, if there's somebody who I'm going to give the benefit of the doubt to, just because of the fact that the propensity for what could go wrong is so great, it would be him. Will saying, I don't know if the glass is full or empty. Let me see if there's even a glass. 
<laughs> no, I just find that always amusing because me and my uh, me and my sports science buddies will always talk about this when we're talking, looking at doping in in sports and stuff. And you hear it repeatedly, like Lance Armstrong said this repeatedly. I never, I never tested, I never tested positive. They test me all the time. I never tested positive. So when I hear that, what I'm saying is they just haven't found the right test to catch me yet. Um, it's and possible, it's just, but... and it's just a matter of, I mean, there's a, I'm not specifically familiar with the whole list of banned substances, um, but HGH and your variety of steroids are just a component of that list. And so when you, it, it just, I always, the, uh, my spidey senses come out a little bit when people use those terms, I've never tested positive. Well, um, I, I, <laughs> if, if you were really clean, you would say, I don't do, I don't do any performance enhancing drugs. I was paraphrasing though, Will. <laughs> oh, okay. what he actually and also, said, but he's done Olympic ever- testing. I mean, and that it's a lot different when yeah. you're an Olympic athlete with basically no money, um, trying to do that unless you have a, um, an industrialized, uh, drug cheat complex like the Russians had where, you know, you have, you know, test tubes going through trap doors and all the stuff. Yeah, that it's a they government, had. government it's different, run. You know, with yeah, the US team, a government so. run uh, exactly. program, yeah. Exactly. And you're under, it's not like you had, you know, you have special, uh, um, like the, the United States wrestling team had access to anything that would, somebody like Angel Heredia that uh, um, said that he's gotten athletes past many, many tests. But, um, uh, now you they're, they're a lot more track and, track and field is in a in a very lucrative sport, but you have some of the most sophisticated doping in track and field. Yep, it's true. And he said he's he's done it. And I don't even want to get into Carl Lewis, but you guys do know that uh, John hid <laughs> under the cage at Jackson's to avoid a USADA tester, right? Did you hear that one? Oh, that's epic. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I do I do that when I think I'm going to be paired up with Brent. <laughs> I'll call or, you out of the locker room. You're putting, you're taking your gi off. I'll tell Professor <laughs> Philippe. Like, Go get him. Uh, yeah, tell him, tell him, get back on the mat. <laughs> My yoga mat's a safe zone, <laughs> safe space. Well, <laughs> yeah. That's that's what I would do if Tokino walked in and wanted to roll. I'd be like, you know what? I really don't feel well today. Uh, <laughs> my ankle looks good pointing this way. Uh, let's let's be honest. Tequino wouldn't be. I mean, I, I don't think I would allow him to roll at the gym. I feel no, like, dude. No, no. Sorry, man. You're yeah. just you're insane. Yeah. Um, so, uh, Fernanda, call nine one one. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the other thing, like I, you know, the the, the guy's first instinct with everything is to lie and it's like you can watch that video of him being pulled over by I think it was I don't know if it was Albuquerque police or sheriffs yeah and he says oh I usually carry my passport when I drive so it tell me a person that you've ever not even know but have heard of that said that they don't know that they need to carry their driver's license name me a person of any gender or any age I've actually never heard of like that the passport excuse like that before. I mean, that's out of left field. But maybe right. I'm just naive like that. What do you got? It's typical junkie crap. Because they've got every 
every excuse in the book to not be held responsible to for what they're doing. I didn't know. I didn't know. I didn't know. I didn't know. And they use your pity. They try to elicit pity by act, by acting ignorant um, to try and use against you because they don't have any other power at that point, right? John Jones can't do anything. He can be arrested, and he was on probation at the time, I believe. So, mm-hmm. you know, he's like, oh, I didn't know, I didn't know, I didn't know, trying to make you feel bad for him. And like, what had happened, I believe, was that because of wrapping his Bentley around the pole in New York with the girls in the car, <laughs> um, he lost his New York driving privileges. And so, therefore, he had just moved to New Mexico full-time and did not have a driver's license to show them, uh, I believe is what happened. And then he went and subsequently got a New Mexico license. So he could have just said, I don't have it with me, it's at home, something like that. But his instinct was to lie and say, I usually carry my passport. Do you want to know something amazing is there's very little reciprocity when it comes to DMV information sharing mm-hmm. uh, regarding DUIs and so forth, is I have clients I see who will have five DUIs and still have their license here in California because they got their DUI in Kentucky, and then they got two in South Dakota, and then they got one in Illinois, and then they just come here, they walk into the DMV, take their driver's tests, and they, they're good to go. And it, it goes to who we, and you know, this, this is going to get really American here in a second, but it goes to who we are as a nation. And, you know, like I've lived in the UK where your driver's license and your road tax and everything are all national things. There are no states. Uh, there are counties and things like that and different laws in different counties, but but their state, you know, the, the, the whole thing is the entire government. So ours is so you know, we are so independent that we want to have these individual states and states' rights. And, and I think it, 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 I guess it all goes back to being repressed by the British uh, back uh, through uh, the 16th and 1700s. So. I think even, even if that's the, that's the case, DJ, then even what Brent is suggesting is just not a, you don't have to ne- necessarily nationalize it, but you can have a way of sharing the information across states without nationalizing it. Well, consider this, Will, that the DIA and the NSA and the CIA and the FBI, if we just look at those four agencies, didn't share information about freaking Osama bin Laden and their federal agencies. Think about that. That could have stopped 9-11. Are we taking an Eddie Bravo turn right now? <laughs> do, the, do the research. Do the research. Out there. He's, got, he's got YouTube in front of him. Yeah. I want you to know that the state of Florida is flat. <laughs> and I can actually prove that if we drive it. But anyway... <laughs> So anyway, I'm sorry. That was taking a, 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 an Eddie Bravo turn. But no, there, there was um, uh, that was one of the findings from the 9/11 bipartisan commission was that that these federal agencies that were in competition with one another were not sharing some critical intel that possibly could have identified and had us go and pick up uh, some of those some of the 19 guys. Whether or not it would have stopped it, I think is probably inconclusive. Uh, that but, you know, damn. <laughs> I wasn't gonna say I'm not gonna. I don't want to get uh, DJ back on the John Jones 
train. I was going to blame it on John Jones. No, well, yeah, it could be. You know what? John Jones could be at the center of all this. No, in all honesty, I, I, I just, I don't care to ever see him fight again. I, I, I just hope that nothing. I think Daniel's concerned that he could possibly harm himself, and he doesn't. Daniel being again showing what a great guy that that he really is um, in real life. Uh, not just on Twitter and and stuff like that and and Instagram, he um he doesn't want to see John harm himself and he he wants him to see him somehow be able to provide for his family. Although he he's very hurt that uh, he's taken him. He has he said the actions of John have not only affected his life but they've affected my life tremendously. And you got to mm. think about that. Think about anybody you've ever rolled with Brent or Will. Who has somehow affected your life off the mat? Mm-hmm. And you probably can't think of anybody. Oh yeah, I can. Skin infections for sure. Mercer. All right. So with that, Ring folks. Staff, all that good stuff. All right, folks. Uh, that that uh, this is MMA BJJ and life. I'm your host, DJ San Marco. Uh, I can be found on Twitter at MMA underscore BJJ underscore and life. The voices you're listening to are that of uh, Jiu-Jitsu Professor Brent Littell, the subject of today's discussion, and uh, my co-interviewer today, Professor Will Wu of Long Beach State. Will, we can now kick it off with, you know, basically the history, the Jiu-Jitsu history and and thoughts of of Brent Littell and stories, and and please... uh, make us cringe and uh, make us smile and laugh, Brent. Go ahead, Will. Yeah, so, man, the... So when I first started training jiu-jitsu, I, my, actually, my son started training first for probably about a year or so. And within the kids' program, I had even heard about Brent uh, training at uh, GBHQ. And I hadn't trained at all yet. I was just a parent watching my son train and I heard that all right there's this black belt who uh in nogi and then he decided to not train nogi anymore and just kind of start not necessarily from the beginning but start anew in the gi um and then I started training and then while I was training Brent got his black belt and to kind of hear not necessarily from Brent but to hear stories and background and information about Brent about his uh, when he started, who he's trained with in the past, and I kind of thought, oh, so, wow, this guy's got a ton of jujitsu, not, not only technical jujitsu knowledge in both gi and nogi, but what jujitsu was like as it was beginning from you know from a kind of social cultural standpoint within the community. And I just thought, I was like, wow, he's like he was there when it started. Like he's still here now, obviously, seeing, observing the changes. And then um, man, it was like probably last week or maybe two weeks ago, um, you know, I, I was lucky to draw Brent in the last live training, <laughs> live training, live training round. Oh, and, lucky uh, you. Yeah, no, it is really lucky me from the standpoint of he's always, he's one of the most giving individuals in um in the academy in terms of teaching and his style of rolling he's bigger than most people but 
Um, he alters the way he rolls with the size of his opponents. I mean, it's really the sign of a true black belt win when people can do that. Not all black belts, even in our academy, will do that type of thing. No, there's some scary guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah for yeah. sure. And, um, you know, after the class was over, um, you know, class is done for the night. The whole academy is about to shut down, and Brent takes me over and um, helps me with some weaknesses that he found in my game. And then afterwards, we were chatting in the parking lot for a little bit about some historical things, some questions that I had. And I thought it would be a real treasure if we can sit him down and kind of ask him questions about, first of all, like how we started. I thought how he started was, was fantastic, literally by who he started training with and where he lived when he started training. And I was, maybe you can take it from there, Brent. And then I'll just kind of ask you questions along the way. But um, can you tell everyone uh, when you started jujitsu, and uh, who was your who were your initial instructors? Yeah, so I actually um, I grew up in right on the border of Pacific Palisades in Malibu, which is uh, in Los Angeles County. If you know where Santa Monica is, you head up the coast, and then the next town is Pacific Palisades, and then the following town is Malibu. Um, at the time, Hicks and Gracie uh, moved into Pacific Palisades, and uh, he had, there was a short period he had an academy there, and then he had an academy down the street in, uh, not really Santa Monica, I don't know, West LA, I would call it. So my, um, I had experience because everybody knew his son, Hoxon. Hoxon was my age, um, so... Hoxon has since passed, but um, in my neighborhood, he got everyone into jujitsu. So I would be at uh, parties and so forth, and or like social get-togethers, and and like some of the guys, not Hoxon himself, a lot, but a lot of like the the guys would start to roll with each other, be like, oh, you know, like the way that dudes go in rough house. And so I started to see that, and I was like, man, that's really that's interesting. But um, to be completely honest, and I know I'll catch some shit for this, but I've already said it publicly, mm -hmm. uh, is that a lot of the dudes who trained there were kind of known as like the assholes in my neighborhood, too. Um, they were bullies, and they would go out and start fights and, and do all that kind of stuff. And they didn't. I didn't have an issue with them personally. Like, they didn't bully me in any way because uh, I was from the neighborhood. Um, and I was so I was a non-issue, but like you know, I'd witness it. Oh, these kids are coming here from Santa Monica. We're gonna go, you know, fuck them up. And I was like, man, that's not really what I want to be around. Um, so I had another friend who was training at a different gym, and it actually wasn't the first. The first gym I consistently started training at was uh, a Cross and Gracie team. But my first actual like real introduction, I was brought to. Um, a smaller known gym under Francisco Bueno and started doing a little bit of jujitsu there. And then it shut down. So I went somewhere else, uh, to, to Hayes, Hey Diogo school, Carlson Gracie team. Um, so, and I went there, you know, Hickson's, uh, so uh, let me backtrack a little bit. Did, let me just ask one thing. Did he know yeah. his guys were starting fights? I have no clue. I don't know how much, um, presence Hickson ever really had with his students personally at his gym mm -hmm. you know because um, 
you know, he was fighting, he's flying to Japan, he was, he, he hasn't been, maybe in his later years now he's going to be more giving as a, as a teacher, but I think he's kind of, he had kind of already turned that corner in his life where he was more just about his fight life and all that. So mm-hmm. that part is okay. So, but does Hickson know now? I'm sure he does. So there's also a part of the story where my uh, sister dated Henry Aiken many years ago. Mm-hmm. Wow. You don't, yeah, it's because he was from, you know, similar neighborhoods and stuff. So I was also, I didn't know Henry as that, but she was like, oh, he does this jujitsu thing. And da, da, da. I was like, what's this jujitsu thing? And then I'm, you know, <laughs> then oxen's around and then these guys are doing it. So I was very like, I guess entrenched in the southern in the Southern California jiu-jitsu scene before I even started, um, and then I, I I went on to start. I got invited by a friend, and I really was like, "Man, this is what I want to do." Um, I walked into Hickson's Academy when I was uh, it would have been 1995, so 15, um, and just watched it, and I saw some of the guys too, and I was like, "Oh, I know those dudes." And I was like. <laughs> Uh, it was kind of like that scene where Daniel LaRusso went in uh... <laughs> Cobra Kai. <laughs> yeah. And, and Mike Dykes is in the front of the class and he looks at you with a... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I hear you jump some of my students. <laughs> no, no. Your story mixed up. <laughs> my favorite guy ever, the guy, the leader of Cobra Kai. <laughs> yeah, so- that guy's awesome. John Kreese. So, yeah. <laughs> so, Brent, you're 15 at the time. In 1995, when I went in there, yeah. And I didn't start jiu-jitsu then. I then said, you know what, I'm just going to do kickboxing. And then I didn't pick it up for like four years later, start jiu-jitsu. So you were, in, you were an undergrad. You were an undergrad at UCLA. Yeah, I was an undergrad at UCLA. And, I, and then, um, you know, my buddy's like, yeah, you should come do this. And then he had... Matt's also in his backyard as well, so he was like showing me stuff, and we were training, and um, and then once I decided like I'm really going to commit to this, the academy I wanted to join shut down. So <laughs> then, which is you two, know, two, two. yeah, <laughs> Will shut up. <laughs> so I went and um, I had an elementary school friend. He now owns. Uh, Henzo Gracie Portland. Um, he, an elementary school friend, he was training, and I, I, I uh, like connected to him and was like, "Where are you training at?" And then he told me, "Oh, at this kung fu school." He wasn't doing kung fu. That's where we rented gym. A kung fu school in Playa del Rey with this Carlson Gracie guy, and I was like, "Oh, okay, cool." Um, I, I didn't know anything about lineage, and the internet wasn't like a really. Uh, full place like it is now where you could search stuff so i was just very lucky to walk in and there were times when carlson senior was there and carlson jr and um amari batesh and valid ishmael wow um, oleg taktarov um i was very very lucky to be around those guys not that i had anything to offer them but just to be in the same just to be in the same room with those guys was really a great experience. Um, so 
I don't like to Hickson bash because it's not about Hickson. It's it was more about just the culture that he had created, or that had been created at his gym in his uh, in his name on under his name that he wasn't perhaps aware of. Yeah, and I mean it goes further than that. I had a my father was in a relationship with uh, a woman for many years who owns a major fast food chain. You guys have all eaten at um, very wealthy woman, and then her son was involved with. Hickson and eventually that beef, their beefs between our neighborhood and Santa, uh, uh, Pacific Palisades and Santa Monica grew and escalated to him shooting my cousin's boyfriend while my cousin was there. My cousin almost got shot. Wow. Um, he, he ended up ser- serving a lot of time on that. Um, but so that was like, and there was a gang, it's like the guys at Hickson's had formed a gang called Jits Mob. And we're just causing all kinds of problems in my neighborhood. Uh, it was it was a little ridiculous. They're all they've all grown up now and grown out of that, and that's you know behind them, and and they're you know. But it I'm ex- sure they, they it, look back and laugh. It explains what you said is that now it it sounds big enough that you said now Hickson probably is aware of what happened, and and it's, um, I can understand why. Yeah. And I mean, also, though, you know, some of that fighting culture stuff is like, tip, I, I don't want to say Brazil is like this place, but, you know, they, they fight the, over there. People have problems, and, and it's just it's not a big deal. Here in America, it's a big deal. But, you know, there's like stories of you just go to the beach and you get in a fight with somebody in Brazil, right? <laughs> and Half Gracie used to go to the beach all the time and beat people up, and that's just how it went. It was like, whatever, so... Um, you know, also culturally for him, it's a little different here. We're, we're a little more violence averse when it comes to like fist fights. We're way more violence tolerant when it comes to military uh, interdictions. But, um, you know, so it might not have been an issue. And I can't fault him for that either, because some of that stuff also happened after Hoxon's passing and and losing a son is like, you know, mm, yeah. you know, I, his, I, I'm sure that took a like the little beefs that people at his gym would start take a back seat to the anguish I'm sure that he was going through because man I mean that's terrible so so yeah but uh, that was I was just not feeling that and then uh yeah I found Carlson team so it was a different it was definitely a different time it was more fighting oriented back then so. how how so like what is the difference between an intro level class then and say maybe an intro level class now. I'll give you a great example. <laughs> well, there was no such thing as an intro level class. Okay. So what's, what's the difference? I mean, it was just, you went to class um, and it was, you were on the mat. It was like, Oh, I'm a white belt. And next to me is Ricardo Perez. I remember that like, uh, it was Frank Mears trainer. Um, at the time, he was a black belt, um, and now he's, I think he runs a Gracie Bahan in Florida. But um, anyway, you had no, there was no, what's it called, uh, introduction class. And then occasionally, like, in sparring, I remember, like, sometimes someone will get really pissed off and start punching someone else. Oh. And then we just kind of be like, oh, let's just see where this goes. Um, that kind of, that happened to me once, <laughs> like the guy was getting frustrated and just started throwing punches and my professor's right there and he's just like, okay, <laughs> like, okay. And then they're like, I'm having to use jujitsu to stop getting punched and 
Um, so it, it was a lot more, there wasn't customer service. It wasn't about, they didn't care if you stayed. I mean, obviously, you know, they, you, they wanted to make money, but there were, it wasn't like, oh, we're going to do, you know, two months of specific training. Your first day, <laughs> your, your first day you're sparring and you're sparring and people are using you as a dummy, and then maybe if you show up on no-gi that week, they'll put on the gloves, and they'll be punching you while you try and take them down, um, and then they'll be punching you while you're on the ground. So it was different in that regard. Now we do, like, a, instead of having you jump from the jacuzzi, which is your life, into the cold pool, we, like, <laughs> ease into it into a stream, and we slowly turn the water colder. Um okay. But I think it's a good thing overall because I think a lot of the guys who started with me back then um, couldn't handle some of that intensity. Now, I had done kickboxing and stuff before, so getting hit and that kind of violence, and I had a, like a long martial arts background um, since I was like six, so getting hit, that was fine for me. I mean, I didn't like it, but it was fine. It was just part of it, and I think a lot of guys quit who would have been great at jiu-jitsu if they, if it had just been paced right. Um, so th that was part of the difference. I mean, there was a lot of like, when a, when a, so now everyone's like, Oh, visitors coming like super. That's cool. Like, where are you from? Ha ha. Take <laughs> hands, be friendly. And it, it was more like, what's this guy doing here before, you know, if he was visiting, it was, uh, it was a little bit in like, we're going to show him, and this still happens at some academies anyway, but, like, we're going to show him what this academy's about. You know what I mean? Like, like we're going to let him know, especially if he's high rank. If he walks in, like, a white belt, we don't really care, but, like, if, if it was, like, a brown belt came in or something, or I remember this black belt visited, and it was like, you know, show up, and, and you better go hard against this guy and all that. So it's different now in that regard. There's... Um, Stop me if I've told this flamenco guitar uh, analogy. So I, I used to play flamenco and classical guitar. And so some flamenco players used to face the wall when they played for an audience because they didn't want other flamenco players to see the techniques they were using to get the sounds that they wow. were getting. Oh, interesting. And before kind of the YouTube um, and just instructionals, uh, jiu-jitsu instructionals were even available um people didn't share information so when visitors came it was always kind of like why are we, we're, what are we gonna we don't want to share with this guy like oh. we've got we've got these techniques and we don't want other people to know our techniques mm -hmm. so it was it was a different now jujitsu has been open sourced with youtube and instructionals and you know flow grappling you can watch competitions from around the world and pick you know pick up pieces from it and guys like bjj scout but back then, it was more like you could see stylistically too. Is is okay? That guy's a Carlson guy when he rolls, and that guy is from Gracie Hometa, and that guy is from, you know, Nova Yunau or whatever. You could just see stylistically too because there wasn't that open source, so everyone's jujitsu was a branch from a tree, and every branch was kind of different. Mm. And so. That I was just going to interject that voice you're hearing right there is Brent Littell. The other person you're hearing is already within two episodes a better interviewer than I, <laughs> Professor uh, Will Wu. And uh, please continue, Will. So, Brent, you as a blue belt back then, 
is matched up with uh, with a Brent Littell who's trained as a blue belt in 2017. Who wins a match IBJJF uh, rule set and who wins the match street fight? All right. Um, so you're saying we take two Brents just yeah. to clarify for the audience. I understand what you're saying. And one of them started back then with a year's, year to two years experience. Yeah, one of them started in 2017 with all of the 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 new styles of teaching and the new style of jujitsu, yeah. and he learns it today. the The new uh, 2017 Brent wins every time, every way. Oh, uh, street fight and IBJJF real set. Absolutely. Um, the level, you know, people love to wax poetic about how great. Uh, jiu-jitsu was back in the day and these guys were so much tougher or whatever everyone's gaming you know the the rule set but people just have so much more technical knowledge now um that are making and it's making them so much better our blue belts today like just the depth and breadth of their knowledge of jiu-jitsu is like a hundred times greater than the blue belts of the past so there's there's also this um, skewing of view as well because we had so few blue belts back before. So you would go to a super fight match. I remember going to watch Javi Vasquez compete in a super fight match as like a purple belt. And that would be at a big, big major tournament. And then you'd have a super fight with purple belts. So blue belts were rare. Purple belts were rare. So then you looked up to them. And it was some idol worship. So then people would go, oh, those blue belts back then were so, so awesome. But it's like, uh, I don't know. if. So if you told somebody, like, show me all your details for a scissor sweep and how you're going to make it work, the guy from today would, like, blow the other guy out of the water. So not that being said, knowledge doesn't always equate to skill because there's the gap of application, which includes timing and physical prowess and so forth. Mm-hmm. However, since in this question you've asked me, two equal Brents, so mm-hmm. they both have the same physical attributes, the, then the person with the technical knowledge is going to far super- surpass that guy who just has that toughness factor, you know? Uh-huh. Yeah, because you're right, because... Oh, go ahead, DJ. I just wanted to stitch back. He talked about visiting and what happened when you visited a gym as a black belt. And I wanted to stitch back to, and we're talking the mid-90s now, to Claudia's coach, Chris Luttrell, traveling with Southwest, going to all these academies and training. Can you imagine what kind of toughness you have to have to show up at an academy, different academy every week, and say, hey, I'd like to train today? And what you would go through back then doing that and how, what type of person you'd have to be to endure that. And that's how they built the Jackson system. So I just want to throw that in there for the un, uninitiated, how Chris Luttrell helped them uh, to develop that system just because he was an airline attendant for Southwest. You know, there's this thing called the gauntlet. I, have I talked about it on here before? No. When you visit When you visit a gym? Okay. And I see it all the time because, you know, you walk in somewhere and you're a black belt. They're going to run the gauntlet on you unless you're friends with the people there. You know, if it's like another Baja and you're cool with them, then then they're nice to you. But when I go visit other gyms, I've never, you know what, I, I will take that. 
I was going to say almost every gym, but there there have been a couple gyms. One of note was um, University of Jiu-Jitsu was like super welcoming to me and didn't do any of that. But because they don't have to, because it's Saulo and Shanji, they have nothing to prove to anyone. But they'll do this thing where they let their good guys rest. So they're brown belts and black belts and they're, they're competitor guys. They'll put them with like white belts during sparring. <laughs> just to kind of keep them, you know, like running a, a sweat a little bit. And then they'll put you with harder and harder and harder and harder opponents until they break you. Okay. And so so they're keeping, they, they create a lineup, basically. Let's say you're going to have six six-minute rounds where each individual after the next is going to be a better opponent. And you're getting more tired and they're holding back guy number five and guy number six they're only rolling with white and blue belts during that time, if rolling at all, not just stretching out, um, until the end when you get them, because their ultimate goal is to show you how tough their gym is. I've even had it to the point where I had a professor. I took a, I was taking a class somewhere. I was visiting, and uh, you know, I went through their whole lineup there, and I'm pretty respectful when I go places. I'll match people's pace, and if they get out of control, I'll get out of control, but... You know, I was, I was, there was no issues at this gym. And I, and I went through the gauntlet. I can tell he's putting me through the gauntlet. And he, he that day wasn't even in his jujitsu clothes. He taught class in like a board shorts and a t shirt. And we were in the geese. We were wearing the geese. He went in the back. Class was over. He went in the back and put his gi on and said, You roll with me. <laughs> because I had run his gauntlet and nobody, you know, was able to, to go with me. But so at that point, I took that as a personal challenge, um, and I didn't hold back on him. But uh, but like that happens a lot still. It was just a, probably a lot worse back then, where they would like, you know, tell you ahead of time if they knew somebody was coming, and it, you know, create strategies and so forth. I remember one time I, I I won't say I've trained at different gyms and they were like, Oh, this guy's terrible at footlocks. When he comes in, I want you to, to, you know, attack his feet the whole time, you know, that kind of stuff. That's cool. unfortunate. Cause they do. Even when I went home to Kimura a couple of years ago to Novanyao in the, the North of Brazil, where I met Claudia and, uh, Juicia and Brown and them. And the, I showed up for a class where, um, the teacher didn't know me. Some of the students still remembered me. And the black belt whipped my ass like five or six times before I got to roll with anybody. Um, well, well, some so. of that's protectionary too, though. Um, on the black belt's part is he wanted to make sure you weren't there to hurt anybody. Yeah. But, I mean, I've rolled. There are people there that know me that were, like, asking to roll with me. You know, uh, and he, okay. but he still, but, but yes, I still think what you said is true, was that he, he wanted to, exactly what you said, he wanted to make sure I wasn't there to hurt anybody first, so, he didn't know me, so, oh well. I'm sorry, continue, Will. <laughs> so then, so then, Brent makes this interesting transition, and so he goes from the gi, and then he decides to train and spend and invest a lot of time nogi. So can you explain that transition, Brent? Yeah, there were a couple of factors. Laundry was one of them. <laughs> <laughs> Carbon footprint. Yeah, go ahead. 
Yeah, no, uh, just uh, starting gi training, I had a lot more access to my laundry and then to laundry, you know, in my home. And then I moved somewhere I didn't have laundry in my home. But um, it just seemed like I felt the trend was moving toward no gi. And I looked at it as more realistic in terms of fighting. You know, it's like I originally walked through the doors to learn how to fight when I and like I felt like sometimes the gi had gotten too derivative and you know we're doing ups- well at that time derivative was like spider guard and that was really advanced but um, I was like man I want to you know I really want to focus on this like getting prepared for a fight thing and so there were no no gi schools around Southern California ex- like except like Chris Brennan's school which was really far from me at the time, because I was living um, in, like, the Beverly Hills area. And so um, Eddie ended up, you know, he beat Hoyler in 2003. He opened up his gym, and it was going to be all no gi. And I was like, well, first, I don't have to do laundry. <laughs> Just that, a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> from, then, the, from the YouTube videos, it looked like you're wearing cycling shorts or something like I that. I love the cycling shorts. Yeah. <laughs> and, by, and by the way... I want to speak to the cycling short thing because they used to make fun of me about that. And now all everyone at Eddie's place wears tights all day. Every single person wears tights. Oh, they're not wearing board shorts now? No, no. They all wear tights. So they gave me guff for it. And I'm like, dude, now look at how ahead of the time I was. No one's getting their to- No one got their toes stuck ever inside of my cycling shorts. So, oh, that's really interesting. OG yeah. DJ OG. Yeah, but and also I came from when they used to wear the fight shorts and stuff. Um, But so yeah, that was part of it. And then also I trained with um, some guys who went and trained with Eddie, and he just had a really like interesting. He had a he was the first one I had seen who had had a system in place. Hmm. So I would show up to class at other, you know, you'd show up to class in other academies, and it would just kind of be like a a buffet of moves, and. It wouldn't make a lot of sense. You had to put the puzzle pieces together yourself. So if I'm in guard and this fails, then I go to this, then I go to this, then I go to this. And it took a long time to put those puzzle pieces together. But the guys who went and then trained with him, um, my buddy Yorba and then a a guy, Will. Will, who was the bully in, um, oh, God, what's that movie? You're Killing Me, Smalls, the baseball movie with the... Oh, Sandlot. Sandlot. He was the bully in Sandlot. Um, he and I were training together, um, and he went and trained with Eddie and he started showing me a system and I was like, Eddie's thing went like, Oh, if you're here, you do this. And then if they do this, you do this. And then if you do that, they do, if they do that, you do this. And he would, he would teach his classes accordingly. And I was like, man, that's lines up kind of with how I learn. Um, so that part of it was really alluring as well. So I had the fight part, I had the system part, and then I had the, uh, the the uh, laundry part and there was another part of it too which was training with an american it was a it was a it was a sport dominated by brazilians and there was just like some culture clash stuff that went on in terms of um favoritism and mm. just all uh, like i'm paying dues and then there's some brazilian guy comes in who works at a brazilian restaurant and then he's not paying dues because they're doing their brazilian homie thing and wow and I'm like, dude, you know, I still work a job I hate too, you know. Um, so, and it was like, 
keeping keeping um what's it called like keeping techniques back still was happening not specifically at my academy but i was like man this dude's an american he's been through kind of like what it's like to negotiate being an american in a brazilian sport so it's not like that now but like you know it was a little different back then so i i was attracted to it and i went there and i and what eddie was showing really made sense to me um and half guard too it's i was just having a conversation with somebody about half guard um half guard used to be the position that you used to get back to guard right or, yeah or you or was the stopping point for your opponent on their way to your side control mm-hmm. and eddie had a half guard system i was at a copa pacifica tournament which is what clubber runs i think he still has them going on he was like copa pacifica three or something and i saw a blue belt jeff glover competing and and he pulled half guard and it like blew my mind i was like what's this idiot doing (laughs) (laughs) he's so brazen like 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 what how he pulled half guard and i saw him do he was just he was doing it i didn't even understand deep half and i didn't understand deep half i think for another like seven years or eight years after that i was like he's getting the half guard then he's sticking his head between the guy's legs and somehow the guy's falling over um that was pre-youtube so we couldn't i couldn't just look up what was going on (laughs) (laughs) and no one was sharing it and and so it took actually training with jeff to get it but the what's it called like Eddie had a whole system for half guard. And I was like, man, this guy is also uh, taking positions that have been neglected and putting in a whole bunch of information into them. So it was a, he, it was really alluring to me. Plus his hours were so late. So I was going to, to like graduate school and working at that point, two jobs. So it was like, man, class starts at 8.30 p.m. Great. You know, I can finish everything I need to do and get to class. Hey, Brent, uh, just to interject real quick, consider for a second the brilliance of this man, Eddie Bravo, that you could hold Hoyler Gracie in a quarter guard mm. for something like 10 minutes. Like, quarter guard. Dude, Eddie's... A delete guard passer. Yep. Eddie's squeeze with his legs is, is unreal. Every... Um, Top level jujitsu player has some amazing attribute to them, uh, whether it be speed, agility, strength, dexterity, whatever it is. And Eddie, Eddie has a couple of them. Obviously, his flexibility is one of them, and his dexterity with his use of his legs. But another is his squeeze. Like pulling your leg out of his quarter guard is no easy feat. It is really difficult. So that <laughs> he what, couldn't what, do it. I mean, Hoyer right. could not pass his damn guard. I think he passed it once in the whole thing, or twenty minutes, or it's bizarre. It it was bizarre to everyone else, but I had written a post, a very Nostradamus post. Somebody had asked me, you know, how's this match gonna go? And I I, I even put I screenshotted it, put it on Eddie's page right after the match, but. Um, but they asked me a couple of days before. I said Eddie's going to use quarter guard, go to the electric chair, um, because that's just he, uh, even though for the rest of us that seems like a really dangerous place uh, for him, that that's where he lives. That's like where he's gotten so comfortable. And most guys aren't comfortable as, as comfortable as they think passing there. They're comfortable doing it against guys who suck at it, 
but not against somebody who's developed a whole series of techniques from there. He has the mini stomp that he works from there. He has all kinds of stuff. So, well, so Brent, from oh. the knee slice pass, thousands of knee slice passes Oiler Gracie's done. From no, the from, from the from the first match to the second match, was Eddie's game plan basically the same? And would do you think that Hoyler just absolutely didn't consider the game that Eddie was going to bring for that second match, Brent? Totally. Um, Eddie's game has changed significantly. Like that vaporizer he used was non-existent at the oh. time in two thousand three. <laughs> So there have been a couple of stages of growth in Eddie's game, and I, I haven't been witness to the last stage, but I've kind of seen it, which is the his, his footlock game, which he's transitioned to. But um, he has he's changed significantly. I want to talk about the Hoyler because you know, this is a multifaceted question. The Hoyler situation is I used to think he didn't respect Eddie's game and didn't bother trying to learn it, yeah. but I learned that he brought Jeff Glover in um, to kind of help emulate Eddie's game. So I think he did try and do as much as he could um, to emulate it. But the thing is, is like Jeff Glover is great at Jeff Glover's game and he can probably imitate Eddie's game really, really well, but it's still not Eddie. Mm. Right. Like, you know, you could find someone to emulate Jeff Glover's game really well, but it's still not Jeff. You're not going to, they're not going to be as good at Jeff, uh, Jeff Glover's game as Jeff Glover is. Yeah. You know, so so I think Hoyler did respect it. I just think Eddie is so not um, unconventional; it's difficult. But Eddie's so Eddie's, you know, first started with that standard game. That standard game you had seen um, him use against Hoyler, and his rubber guard and half guard game and twister game. And then something changed where he got rid of a position he really loved called London. It's now called the Sean Williams guard. Um, but he got rid of that because people were cartwheeling over him. And then Sean Bollinger, who's one of Eddie's black belts, um, I think he was Eddie's third black belt, came and started training. And he actually had more flexibility than Eddie. And he he created something called the double bagger, which is where you do rubber guard with one hand and the other hand grabs the other leg over the back. And that actually changed Eddie's whole uh, rubber guard game, increased the level of flexibility needed in order to do it. Um, and then Eddie's half guard game kind of changed with some, some of the twister roll vaporizer roll stuff kind of, uh, a little bit later, probably in like 2009, 2010. Um, he changed the way he went to his twister cause people were getting really good at flipping twisters on him. Um, and then now he's changed to the footlock game. So his game plan is, was different in the sense that he was much better he had a more depth to his game and different game. And he didn't have a quarter guard game before his quarter guard game developed probably around 2009, 2010 as well. When he got into this position that he liked, which was called, he found, he called it the mini stomp. Um, so he wouldn't have had that same game plan that he had for Hoyler two in his first match back in Abu Dhabi. No, I mean, he oh. pulled quarter, he pulled half guard right from the you know first 30 seconds of the show yeah i mean his, he didn't even try to go full guard no and uh his high school wrestling coach was probably really sad but 
<laughs> so we, the three of us come from an academy that's fairly uh, procedural in its approach to each class. We know what to expect. There's a curriculum. Um, and it's a very well written out, programmed on what we're going to do from a day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month basis. Uh, so what is it like your first class going in um, to Eddie Bravo's academy, which it wasn't called 10th Planet at the time, right? No, it was. It was 10th okay. Planet. Well, the name of the gym was the Bomb Squad, but then Eddie still had his team because the Bomb Squad more referred to the kickboxing program there. Mm-hmm. And then um, he had his 10th Planet. You know, you'd be – so when we say regimented um, – like Eddie would come in and he would tell us a story for like 20 minutes and he'd do some stand-up comedy. Um, <laughs> like, you know, just telling us about girls and I don't know, music or mostly girls. Um, <laughs> he, he was single at the time uh, or some like, uh, he would tell the story about how he got pepper sprayed he was at a. He used to be a DJ at a strip club, and he went to the Christmas party, and there was some stripper there that he was friends with, and he gave her a nudge on the shoulder, and then she freaked out and said, "You hit me," and told her boyfriend, and then the boyfriend wanted to beat Eddie up, but everyone said, "No, no, 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 don't go fight him. He'll he'll kill you." Like you know about Eddie will kill him. So then the guy went and got pepper spray and pepper sprayed Eddie. Um, I've heard that story like like ten times before <laughs> class. Uh, and then Eddie oh it's funny because that story happened and then Eddie came in that was like a Sunday night he got pepper sprayed and he came in Monday and was rolling and pepper spray is strong because we were all still feeling the pepper spray come off of Eddie through his sweat but um (laughs) the so what was the real story (laughs) that was the story is that was the legit story of Eddie getting pepper sprayed but you know he he would come in and tell those stories and so class was supposed to start at 8.30, 8.30, but then, like, with the comedy hour and stuff, it would really start at, like, 8.45, 8.50. You would hear about DM, you know, traveling to another dimension with Joe Rogan and meeting a <laughs> Indian guide and, you know, all that. <laughs> I'm picturing then, Jim like, Morrison smoking peyote with that Indian out in the desert. Yeah, it was DMT, but very similar. Yeah, okay. so th- so that's how it would it would kind of go. The, in terms of the jujitsu, and the, there was no warm up. It was like, all right, gather around. We're doing we're doing jujitsu now. Um, and then it was. But that being said, that his approach to teaching was very regimented. So the class structure was all over the place, right? Um, but. Once he got down to teaching the technique, th- he was very articulate and uh, um, was able to methodically teach the technique. But then we would do wild shit sometimes. Like he'd be like, "All right, half you guys take off your shirts, the other half leave your shirts on. Now brawl, uh, your team versus their team, and whoever has the last man standing <laughs> wins." But we realized very uh after a while it got super dangerous because i actually remember i was stuck in a choke so i couldn't say tap and somebody was doing an arm bar to me and then another guy was footlocking me and there was, there was no way for me to really like safely tap you know because like i was like laying on the other arm so after a couple of those like situations for a couple of us we were like, ooh, we probably shouldn't do this shirts versus skins like bar fight anymore. 
But yeah. So what did you do out of that position? Like, so, how, yeah. How did, I, how did you get I, out of it? I hurt. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I died. This is all a dream. <laughs> um, I, I, they just took mercy on me. I think they realized at that oh, point. Just, oh, okay. Yeah. But, you know, if you get some, sometimes you have those guys, like the ones who roll to the edge of, mat, of the mat and you think they're going to stop, and they're just so caught up in winning, they don't see where they are in the in the academy, mm-hmm. and they'll, they'll like, go down the stairs if you keep rolling with them. So, like, you didn't want to take the chance. Eventually, you'd have one of those guys who didn't realize he had you in a full arm bar and would just fucking break it okay. and not realize you couldn't tap. So we were just like, ooh, probably shouldn't do that one anymore. That's the same with Hanato Lebron's stick. He used to pick on randoms in the class, like uh-huh. people who visited the class, and he would punk them. And then uh, we had a couple situations where, like, those dudes didn't take it too well, and like, like somebody like went to go smack Hanato uh, from behind and shit like that. And then we're like, okay, we needed to stick to him with Eddie because otherwise, you know, there's gonna be some danger here. What well, was Matt Mitrione? Was one of them, right? Matt Mitrione was one of them that if you see the video, you'll see me run over to prevent him from cold cocking Hanato. And then um, there was another, there was this guy, Chuck, who was a very large uh, purple belt uh, at the time who, it was weird because he had trained with Hanato before, so he knew him and it was like, he went, he, I, I don't know, he just like, was like, oh, I guess he thought the dude, that Hanato snapped. So he was like creeping on him, like a, like a stalking him, like a jungle cat. And I saw it and ran in and caught him. And so there, there'd been a couple of those. And I'm like, oh, we need to stop doing this. We need to get it under controlled conditions. How good is his jujitsu, um, Hanato? And to, to the he's best of your He's at 27. <laughs> Hodger's only, Hodger's only a ten-time world champion. That's everything you need to know, right there. I know. Come he's on. a good. He's a good jiu-jitsu player. He's he a, looks he's like got, it. He's got a good. He's got a good butterfly guard. He has a very strong, like uh, Andre Galvao-inspired uh, passing system. He uses. Yeah. So, and he has a really good uh, north-south choke. That's what he's kind of known for. So he's, the first time. So the first time I'm watching one of those videos, I'm just you know, randomly watching videos on YouTube and I see this, the title come up, the catchy title of Eddie Bravo gets arrested or for assault or something like that. So I click on it and going through the whole punking motions and then I see the, the ruckus break. And then I see basically it's you running across the screen looking to break someone, some, something up or like take someone out of the gym who was, who had just gotten choked out. And I go, I think that's Professor Brent. And then I saw the tight cycling shorts, and I said, it made me double-take if it was you or not, because you in tight, t- in tight cycling shorts, I couldn't. Like, it made me double-take. I couldn't believe it. And I, I hit rewind or backed it up a little bit, and it, was, and it was you. And that's when I kind of put some things together in terms of, man, this guy's got a ton of kind of cultural developmental knowledge in jiu-jitsu in the United States. And he's the Miguel Indurain of Tenth Planet. Sorry, you guys might not know. <laughs> the um, I have uh, yeah. As far as like jujitsu comedy is concerned, I've been at the forefront of that. Uh, <laughs> there've been a lot of guys with more in the the technical jujitsu aspect than me, but yeah, it would I be, was. It would be really awesome for one night you did a throwback 
Wednesday Nogi night and then showed up to Nogi in the uh, cycling shorts. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I will. Here's the thing. If, I wonder if we can get a pass from Professor If, Felipe, if Baja made like that style of of short, <laughs> the same the same one that like uh, Rafael dos Anjos fights, and he fights in biker shorts when he fights. Yeah. All the champions wear biker shorts, by the way. <laughs> oh, Woodley, yeah. Dude, if you look at statistics, like uh, Anderson Silva, when yep. you look at statistics, bicycle shorts are really what champions wear. If Baja made ones that were approved for Nogi, I would absolutely wear them. You're right. Um, they're Jones. more comfortable for me, they're, and they have less danger. So if you have a uh, if you have a rash guard on and cy- you're you know the those cycling style shorts, no one's toes or fingers are going to get caught in anything. Huh. Um, they also don't restrict your movement, and they don't hike up. So, like, if you wear, like, board shorts when you're in guard, they fall all the way down to, like, your, you know, like, way down your thigh to, like, your growing region. And that's a skin area that gets exposed to, for, you know, skin infections and stuff, so. Ooh. I'm yeah, we, cl- we clean our mats very well, but, um, you know, there were times when I used to train on mats that weren't as clean. But then I took charge and was eventually the official mat cleaner of 10th Planet as well, so. <laughs> every every night I mop the mats till eleven forty five at night. So guys, we have about four and a half minutes. Uh, it'll bring us to an hour and a half, and we can call this like episode one because I have a feeling that we could probably do another hour at least. <laughs> yeah, because there's that's only the first half, DJ. Oh, I know. There's a I know. second half to the I, whole uh, the little equation here. Yes, but I <laughs> I. I, I I hesitate to do a Joe Rogan style three hour podcast, but I'd like oh, to. Oh, you do... lose everyone. You lose everyone doing that. <laughs> yeah, I'd like to do this. We'll keep it at an hour and a half, but I'd like to come back and and do another one and delve further into it uh, because both you guys are uh, just, you know, two of the most, you know, interesting guys that we train with. Uh, two of the most funny, although Brent is Prince funny in a different way. I feel like you could do a stand-up set, whereas Will just really likes to rip on people. <laughs> you know, DJ, you know what was fantastic? So uh, uh, Professor Philippe was at, um, he was coaching RDA in, was it Edmonton? And Brent fills in for uh, the Nogi class. I was there, it's, remember? Oh, yeah. So Maybe did, okay. so. <laughs> Handsome so guy. he makes he makes the reference. So we're doing supposed to do foot sweeps or something like that, and Brent says, "Oh well, you don't really foot sweeps aren't really effective in in nogi." And he makes a like this super um, I don't know uh, unique reference to a wrestler. I think Dave Mako, yeah. 2000, 2003 NCAA <laughs> championship. He won. He won the championship with a foot sweep. Yes, on a foot sweep. And I'm thinking to myself, "Holy moly, this guy knows a lot of a lot about grappling historically, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. And then I start looking around to try and see if anyone knows who the heck that was or whatever it is that you're talking about. I do. But everybody kind of everybody kind of played it off like, "Yeah, I know that dude. I remember seeing that." Dude, <laughs> I, Mako, he the foot sweeps. Yeah, and also, uh, what was it, in the World Championships a month ago, Helen Maroulis did it. Yep. Yep, did you see that? That was such a beautiful foot sweep. Oh, yeah, she did like a, it was like a slide-by to a foot sweep or something. Yes, it was a slide-by to a foot sweep. 
Yeah. So they are okay. So my thing is this: they're not super relevant. If you look at a thousand wrestling matches, you might see one foot sweep. It doesn't mean that there aren't people out there who do use them effectively. But man, if we're, the problem I had is like so many of your guys' shots looked so ugly when I would see them. <laughs> we, we've got to work on your double legs. That's the bread and butter. The foot sweep stuff we can, you know, you can add that in later as like the the parsley on the side. But we need the steak and potatoes. <laughs> you must understand, Brent, that Will was looking for you to try to teach. Uh, something that uh, statistically low chance of working, so he could get on your case. So that's this yeah. is opportunistic. In I just thought that was the best <laughs> reference because I'm sitting here going, I have no idea who that is. I've never uh-huh. seen that before. I don't know what it looks like. And uh, I mean, DJ, you're fairly well rehearsed in you know in the combat sports and right the the past the major events that have been going on, but. I don't know. What do you think the percentages of that class knew who was in my boat? Um, there's some. There's only one or two. There's a couple of wrestling guys that we've had come in and out, but there's not a lot. Um, uh, Kanan is one of them. He was a wrestler. There's a few. You know, the brown belt, and he hasn't been around lately. So yeah, there's only a couple of a couple of guys. Um, but uh, but yeah, I've definitely heard that name. So that was a Brent classic moment from yeah, that. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, and I love Mako because he's a heavyweight, and I like to watch <laughs> the heavyweights. So he, he had a special place in in my heart with, with uh, using a foot sweep, and he's a judoka as well. So I think he tried so, MMA, so right, Brent? But he did. I think I he's... think he did. Everyone's tried MMA. Yeah. But, you know. No one likes getting punched in the face, and I don't blame them. That's why I don't do MMA. Yeah, I mean, even, I mean, Alexander Karelin even tried MMA, which was bizarre to see him out there wearing a singlet, you know, doing MMA and just his physique. <laughs> that guy is just, he's from another, he's from another planet, I think. So. Well, we know which lab in Russia to check for that. That's but. true. Yeah. We should go check his urine. It, it's and then, possible. Uh, Rulong Gardner also was in uh, with like Pride or one of those. Uh, You're right. Yeah, he did do a I fight. Think he, I think he fought Yosh- not Yoshida, a different Yoshida. Yeah, there's a uh, couple of different Yoshidas, isn't there? There's like an older a, one and then a younger one. A big judoka. Yeah. Like a big dude. Yes. Yeah. And it was an ugly ass match too. It wasn't even anything to write home about. <laughs> yep, I know who I know who you're talking about. He was an Olympic judoka prior to the the other Japanese guy who trained here in Huntington Beach, and his career kind of petered out. And I can't even think of his name now, but I know I know who you're talking about. So yeah, all right, guys, that's about an hour and a half. Uh, we got to do this again. Uh, there's a lot more ground to cover. Um, relative to everything that Brent knows about jiu-jitsu and MMA. It's crazy, right? It is, it's absolutely crazy. It, it just astonishes me. Um, I remember driving home that one night after we were having that, uh, that conversation in the parking lot, and I was like, man, there's so many more questions I wanted to ask, and I got to tell DJ about this because this is really <laughs> good for, like, for people to know and people to share, and I just kind of look at it as we're fortunate in many ways for the people that come in and out of the academy, the people that are in the academy. Um, but we have a good resource in terms of the people who will really enjoy jujitsu, um, a good resource where 
you know, it kind of tracks it from the beginning to at least the beginning when it was in the United States relatively to where it is now and how it's changed and like the contrast between no gi and just all of a sudden switching back to gi and those sorts of things. So I have many more questions that I want to ask, um, but I guess we could do so at, an, at another another podcast. Is, is it not bizarre, Brent, how natural he is at this? I know. You'd think that they taught public speaking for college professors. <laughs> well, yes. You know, okay. I, don't, I don't know if you know. I just I don't fell know down, in case you're wondering, at Brent's comment. I just got hurt. I don't, I don't know if you uh, put this together, but uh, Brent and I are both uh, Bruin alum. Uh, yeah. Oh, gee, right. I didn't put that together when you said yeah. earlier that he went to UCLA. No, it never crossed my mind, Will. Yeah. When you and know I'm not sure. If, I don't know. I'm not sure if we were there at the same time. I graduated in '99, but uh, yeah, I graduated in 2002. So we were, we, you know, we probably overlapped a little bit. But you were probably in upper division courses, and I was, yes, South Campus Science major. <laughs> I was a North Campus Religion major. So oh, we could have been no, no. different. <laughs> I would love to be able to dig up dirt on any of the crazy things that Will did at UCLA, I'm hoping that we can have his wife on at some point to just kind of dish <laughs> oh, on him. Gosh. I just love that. So <laughs> I um, did everything right, Jay. Everything right. Textbook. I'm not saying you did. I just want to hear about some of the wild stuff that you did and people you pissed off and things like that. That's all. Strict <laughs> so. Chinese Mexican family growing up. So we <laughs> <laughs> the Xi Jinping of Gracie Ba. <laughs> From the Shaolin temples uh, of, uh, of China to Of Mazatlan. <laughs> of Mazatlan. <laughs> I'm, right. I'm, just, I'm just fractionally pissed about the wall. Just fractionally. <laughs> Because uh, your people also built a wall, too. So. Exactly. <laughs> Folks, it isn't going to get any better than that. We've got to leave it right there. That is the voice of Professor Brent Littell of Gracie Baja, Felipe Della Monica's Black Belt, Eddie Bravo's Black Belt from 10th Planet, Brent Littell, a fascinating individual, and our dear friend and chief antagonist at GBHQ, Professor Will Wu of Long Beach State University. It has been in truly mean this i really mean this it's been an honor to talk to both of you and well worth me staying up for we will have a part two where will will ask more questions make me look more inept as a host and <laughs> um <laughs> and, and we'll have some more fun talking uh, some ufc and and more importantly reliving um some of the moments of Brent's considerable time in jiu-jitsu. Maybe I'll even get Javi to call in and uh, harass Brent. Who knows? So, or or <laughs> right. H- Uncle Hanach. Call Hanach. Uncle Hanach. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Thank you very right. much. Thank you. Have a good one, guys. I'm going yeah, to gentlemen. All right. Good night, Will. Good night, Brent. And uh, this right. is DJ. Uh, this is uh, DJ San Marcos saying thank you very much for listening to MMA BJJ and life tonight. Um, we will have more stuff for you, more life episodes. This was a hashtag jujitsu episode, I would say, but we also did a little bit of UFC on there. And I think we covered a little bit of life too. And um, 
And uh, again, I was honored to have both those guys on. So um, we will talk to you soon uh, and probably preview the next big card, which I believe is going to be Tony Ferguson, Kevin Lee. And before that, hopefully we can get Brent on again. Maybe we'll also get Javi and uh, and uh, Uncle Hinato Laranja on. Would be awesome to have him and Brent reminisce while Will and I listen. So uh, thank you very much. Um, and once again, as, as I always say, um, I'll see you down the road. And as always, I'm, I'm wondering what's up around the bend.